You're listening to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that shape our world. I'm your host, Julia McFarlane. And I'm Richard Dearlove, former Chief of British Intelligence, otherwise known as MI6. Richard, we had a fascinating guest joining us on the podcast this week. The former president of Lithuania, Dalia Grybauskaitė. She was Lithuania's first female president and she was president at a time when Russia changed from a country newly under the leadership of Vladimir Putin, who at the start, many Western leaders were optimistic about. Tony Blair, David Cameron, for example. But then with the annexation of Crimea in 2014, things quickly changed. And one of the first leaders to go strong and hard on Putin and the threat that he represented was Lithuania under President Dalia, leader of a small country, the first country to declare independence before the Soviet Union dismantled, and a country that has Russia on its border with the exclave of Kaliningrad, just 40 miles between that exclave, Russian territory, and Belarus, what is known as the Sawalki Gap, that is in Lithuania, and analysts have described it as NATO's most vulnerable strip of land. It's a pinch point. In Lithuania, they take the Russian threat very seriously, and they're very worth listening to. Absolutely. And I mean, I think President Dalia is really almost seminal in her analysis, because, you know, she has such a clear and precise view of the way, you know, that Russia has tried to intimidate the states on its periphery. And of course, interestingly, Russia historically has a long record of destabilizing the countries it borders uh, in order to weaken them and to ensure, even if they're not within the realm of Russian influence, that they're as it were, ineffective as opponents or influencers of Russia's enemies. So I think one sees this picture playing out historically. But it's fascinating to hear from her how, let's say, the forcefulness of Putin's opposition has been a catalyst for the rebuilding of effective defence alliances in the Baltic republics in particular, and it's remarkable, given how overbearing Russian power is, if you're sitting in Lithuania or if you're sitting in Latvia or Estonia, that you know she can still take such a positive view. And I think we all should, as it were, take inspiration from her ability to think in such a constructive fashion. Uh, you know, one would love to see more of that from some of the other leaders sitting close to the Russian border. I mean, the ones I'm thinking of are sort of Serbia, Slovakia and Hungary, who have, as it were, I wouldn't say thrown in their cards with Putin, but are, are much more cautious in the way that they treat him. Well, I think both Lithuania and President Dalia, they have such interesting insight when it comes to Russia. Lithuania was the first FSU nation to declare independence. It did so before the formal breakdown of the Soviet Union. President Dalia herself, she was very forceful in 2014 during the annexation of Crimea. She criticised Putin 
very strongly. She accused him of terrorism with the annexation of Crimea uh, to the consternation of a lot of European allies at the time. So Lithuania is a bit of a forward looker when it comes to warnings about Russia and Russian aggression. And that perhaps informs how it views other situations such as the aggression of China and how China has been dealing with Taiwan. And we first of all talked to President Dahlia about the recent Taiwanese elections and we got her thoughts on how important they were uh, for Taiwan and why Lithuania was a country that really sticks its neck out when it comes to Taiwan. Madam President Dalia Gribaskaite, the former first female president of Lithuania. President Dalia, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you on One Decision. Yeah, thank you. I want to first talk to you about Taiwan because they had their elections very recently. We saw the Taiwanese population elect the pro-independence candidate, something that Beijing had warned them not to do. They said that it was going to be a vote for war if they were going to go for that candidate. Lithuania has a very interesting and very close relationship with Taiwan. I'd love to get into that with you, but I'd like to just start off by asking you, since you went on a delegation uh, last summer to Taiwan, you visited them, what did you hear from the Taiwanese officials about the situation with Beijing and what was your reaction to the recent elections? I had a chance to uh, lead the delegation of Atlantic Council. Uh, last uh, summer and for me it was a very interesting visit of course because it's a very far region but the hope of people to live in freedom and to live independently it's very much reminded how we were fighting 33 years ago for our freedom and independence so of course it's not the same situation but anyway the aspirations of people for a free and democratic uh, life is the same. So uh, after these elections, of course, we hope that it will be political continuity of democratic governance. That's what is important generally, uh, geopolitically in the world, because more or less we can say that uh, recently the uh, autocratic regimes are trying to fight uh, against democratic governance, uh, persuading that uh, autocracies are more efficient than democracy. So from this point of view, uh, it is uh, very important that uh, Taiwanese people will be able to continue their democratic life, their independent governance life, while, of course, there is ambiguity in international community, how we call them, still we try to use this kind of one-China policy. I will say that we're a little bit playing a game with the words and trying to avoid direct conflict with China, everybody, including the European Union. But uh, de facto, we're supporting very much uh, Taiwan's aspirations, and especially in our region, because we understand what that means to be free to be independent, and to be democratic. You point out the ambiguity and this game that we play with China over Taiwan. The ambiguity with Taiwan is interesting because the Taiwanese themselves perhaps don't want all-out independence. Certainly a lot of its allies don't want all-out independence. They favour the status quo. And so the idea of democracy and freedom for Taiwan and it's so completely bang on that you talk about the play on words, because that's not really what 
Taiwan or its allies really want for itself, not total freedom. They have this delicate dance to play with China. Lithuania is also a very strong ally of the Tibetans. They've spoken out very strongly against oppression of minorities. Is your support for Taiwan more about what you stand against when it comes to Beijing? It is sensitive and difficult because nobody can be more Taiwanese than Taiwanese themselves. As much Taiwanese people want, that's what we support. We do not impose anything or enforce anything for them because in our case, Lithuanian case, we have been occupied by Russians for 50 years. That's a different story. And we were fighting for our real independence and freedom from occupation. For Taiwanese, it's a different choice. That's the choice to be free in their decision-making, is the choice to be democratic governance, and is the choice to create their Taiwanese identity as much as they would like themselves. And here, international community, no one can impose to them what they need to do and how they will go about it. There are still different opinions inside country between generations. It is probably normal. So from this point of view, we will support uh, Taiwanese people in their decision of being democratic and free as much as they want themselves. President Dahlia, I'm very encouraged to hear your analysis and I agree with it. But one of the problems that we face is that Xi Jinping seems to have staked the credibility of his administration or his rule in China on eventually incorporating the Republic of China, I mean, i.e. Taiwan, into the People's Republic of China. And therefore, we seem to be you know, moving inexorably in a direction where Xi Jinping, particularly if things start going badly for him economically in China, where the pressure you know, will mount continuously on Taiwan. So the chances of you know, one China, two systems, and, and jogging along in the way that we've done in the past seems to me to be a diminishing rather than a constant possibility. As I said, it's a jangling a little bit with the words. And... Uh, this is not ambiguity, which is not clear, uh, which we try to keep ourselves in. And it's not the best thing uh, to have. Why it is important for Taiwanese themselves to decide what exactly they want and how fast they would like to, to have it. And of course, the geopolitical tensions and danger and balance between uh, uh, mainland China and Taiwan, how their relations will be in future, will depend on both sides, absolutely, because uh, only to think that somebody will attack or others will immediately jump into defense uh, and to help uh, Taiwanese to militarily to defend themselves probably will be a mistake at all to go to that phase because it's uh, uncomparable entities by uh, force, by military capacities, by everything. But uh, I don't want to speculate at all. I think. Um, a unity enforced by force unity will not serve neither mainland China, neither President Xi, neither Taiwanese people, because by force you will never be loved and the union will be only just for a few years and maybe decades, but it will be enforced and uh, very difficult to acknowledge by both sides. So from this point of view, I just wish for Taiwanese people to have freedom to have democratic governance and not to be disturbed by any enforcement by force. If in future 
the um, Taiwanese people will decide to have different and better relations with mainland China. That's up to Taiwanese people to decide. The president's party, the DPP, doesn't actually have a majority, does it, in the Taiwanese parliament? The, the largest party is still the Kuomintang. And, and, and in a way, that's, I think, an advantage in securing a compromise because the Kuomintang you know, are part, you know, of, of the sort of ruling structure of Taiwan, and they clearly have a different attitude towards the Chinese relationship. I mean, did you sense this when you were there talking to different politicians? I do not met opposition, different generations. And that was clear very much that uh, even between the generations, there is different understanding of identity the history and what future for Taiwan uh, will be. So why I'm again emphasizing it's up to Taiwanese people to decide about their future and let them do it. it. It's better nobody intervene, nobody dictate, nobody impose by force. And for that, it still will need a few generations to come in democracy because only democracy can filter real feelings, real uh, hopes, uh, real desires of people. And I just wish them to have democracy as long as it possible and to define their own future by themselves, by anybody else. The last time we spoke to a representative of, of your government a couple of years ago, Lithuania was embroiled in a pretty bitter row with the Chinese over the renaming of your embassy to Taiwan. Beijing was angered by the renaming of it from Taipei, the city, to Taiwan, the country, although not obviously its status as a country is is not one that is recognized by much of the international community. But there was a lot of blowback from China. They were very angry by that move. What has the blowback been? After two years, it's cost nothing. In the very beginning, we were expecting a more serious impact, but in two years, our businesses were able to find uh, different markets. And economically, we're able to avoid a large impact. But of course, uh, politically, uh, it, it was our stance and our understanding and respect to Taiwanese people. And it was surprising for us, of course, such uh, reaction uh, from Beijing, of course, because for such large countries to be and demonstrate uh, anger, I think it's not solid at all. And I mean not only Chinese in this situation, but also have the same on our borders with another country. So it's surprisingly that such kind of large countries are so irritated by smaller countries' efforts to protect their resilience, their independence, their freedoms. But it's typical probably everywhere around the world. But with a land border with your large neighbour, which of course Taiwan doesn't have with its neighbour, you're very vulnerable to the sort of sophisticated interference that the Russians can mount. And I, I mean, clearly, China plays a bit the same game with Taiwan. And you have to have uh, presumably quite a sophisticated resistance in terms of your own capability to mitigate this impact on your country. I mean, I do admire little, you know, you're a small country, Lithuania, but standing up to the giant bear, which is breathing over your border is quite a challenge. It's our survival uh, skills. We were able to survive for centuries, being in very sensitive strategic, uh, geopolitical, geographical situations between the West and between the East, uh, somewhere in between, and, and after Soviet occupation and our independence, now in 21st century, twice in 20th century from Russia. Uh, we 
became a resilient. And for us, it was quite a different story. It was occupied. It was deportation of our people. It was destroying our country. It was suppression to our language, to our heritage, to our culture. So that's very much different story. So from this point of view, we became resilient because of how historically Russia was behaving with us. And our generations are not forgetting and not forgetting the so-called Siberia, the deportation of our practically every family. We had people who suffered from deportation and the disappearance of our people. So during the Second World War, after the Second World War, and during all period until the beginning of the 90s. So from this point of view, it's not so easy to impact us, especially for Russians. And it's not so easy to insert ideology which is against us. We learn how to resist, we learn how to survive. And uh, we do now, all the time, we are under pressure of so-called hybrid warfare from Russia. It's propaganda, it's ideological interference, it's uh, uh, even uh, we do have now cyber attacks uh, practically every day, any other provocations every day. And this makes us more strong, more resilient. And from this point of view, for us, it's easier because today Russia declaring themselves as enemy of the West, as enemy on the border. So it's for us a lot of easier. We do not need to look and define. It is clear. Can you go into a bit more detail about that hybrid warfare and how the Russians are targeting Lithuania? I mean, cyber attacks kind of speak for themselves, but what the information warfare you mentioned, the propaganda, are they finding a foothold in Lithuania given how Lithuanians are very strongly, very aware of the history of Soviet Russian aggression and is there really a foothold for the Russians to try and wage a disinformation war in Lithuania? They try. They think that they are doing well, but uh, it is not the case. We even do not have any anti-European or anti-democratic uh, political party in Lithuania at all. Not because we don't allow, but because there is no people who will be supporting such kind of attitude. And from this point of view, uh, any provocation, we're able to dismantle uh, very, very fast. Any lie, we are able to dismantle very fast. But for example, uh, after the Crimea occupation, we started to invest in our security in the region a lot more, and we agreed in NATO that we will have forward presence NATO forces in all Baltic states and, and in all uh, eastern flank. And uh, Lithuania uh, agreed with Germany for Germans to take responsibility. And uh, the first uh, Luftwaffe plane landed in Lithuania, and in a week time, there was a false alarm that German soldier raped Lithuanian girl. And uh, it was in an hour. We checked the name of the girl, we checked the situation, and it occurred that there is even no such name of girl in Lithuania at all. But they tried to say that Germans are back, I mean, after Second World War, again back, and they're raping Kaoga. So if um, such aggressive, such uh, lies which are so angry, they're not clever. And we can recognize them very fast. And after each such kind of events, the more resilience we grow ourselves. So from this point of view, recently it was, for example, 
the letters uh, for all our institutions, the kindergartens, uh, schools, that there is a bombs placed uh, in kindergartens and in the schools. It was 3,000 a day. But of course, it, it is, you know, if it will be one or two, maybe we will be frightened. But if 3,000, it's clear that it is just a bluff and just attack. So, you know, if enemy is just very, very angry, he's not clever. And that also helps us to beat him back. President Dalia, you, I think, tried to dialogue with Putin when you first came to power. And I mean, maybe there's a little bit of experience we share here, because I too met Putin with Tony Blair when he first came to power. And, you know, we started off maybe being a little bit optimistic that he could be a different sort of Russian leader and that we might have a different relationship with Russia under his administration. Unfortunately, that didn't last very long. And you probably know the history and the deterioration in the relationship between the UK and Russia. I mean, what, what do you think happened to Putin? Why? You know, when he started off in a rather different place politically, or that's what it appeared from the outside, or was he always like he is and, you know, turn into this extraordinarily isolated and dangerous political leader? You know, I can only speculate and we speculate uh, about the people who we cannot know everything about. Of course, in the very beginning, all of us, then you come to power, you have illusions, you have optimism, you want to have better relations, and you are trying to contact your neighbor with open hands and open heart. And uh, I tried to have the first meeting, uh, it was in 2010, in Finland, we have been in conference, and uh, at that time, Prime Minister Putin met with all Baltic leaders uh, in Finland. And at that time, for us, it was, for me, I was about six months in office. For me, it was surprising very much that we, Lithuania, were paying for gas 30% more than Germany was paying, without the reason, really. It mainly, and I tried in the meeting to clarify why, what we did wrong and why the price is so different. Even we are closer to the pipeline and border than Germany is. So, and it was clear that we were paying for our stance. We were paying for our dignity. We were paying that we were not given in. And we were paying because we wanted to be free and independent. And uh, he gave me the list of what Lithuania must do. I started to read the list. A lot of things which are unacceptable for for country, of course, including energy dependency on them and all these kind of things. And after the meeting, I realized that uh, we need to cut energy ties immediately because via energy, they are making pressure on country, political, economic, and corrupting political system corrupting individuals, corrupting political parties. And my main goal was to cut uh, Gazprom out from our side. And we did this via LNG terminal. And we built the LNG terminal, the first in Europe, in 2014. It started fully in 2015. And we rejected the European budget because with Europe uh, negotiations, uh, it will took a lot of time, two, three years, to discuss only the project. So we went uh, on our own. And we 
in 2015, we became absolutely independent from Gazprom. And we were able to uh, provide gas even to our neighbors, Latvia and Estonia. And in 22, then, uh, Europe got the crisis after the war uh, in Ukraine started. So uh, Lithuania was absolutely able, capable to help uh, the neighbors in this situation, and we were not affected. So the first meeting made uh, me to decide what we need to do. I realized that this uh, person and country is not willing to accept their neighbors uh, honorably, that they are trying to make you knee on your knees, or you became enemy, or you give in, or you enemy. So the choice uh, with such a neighbor is or you corrupted, or you are they attempt to or corrupt or destroy or poison or whatever. So that's your choice you take. And I took the choice uh, to become independent. And that's how Lithuania now, energetically and politically, because the main tool for political corruption was energy in Russia's hands all the time with all countries in Europe and in the world, of course. It was energy, uh, monies and political corruption. And, and this uh, we avoided already in 2015 at all. Fully. I'm saying this uh, that in our role of strengthening our resilience all the time, I'm saying this ironically now, Putin helped us to be prepared and to fight him back. If the relations will be more uh, respectful with neighbors from Russia's side, this will be not the case at all. And we will be not in this situation today at all. President Dalia, I just want to take you back to the start of the all-out invasion of Ukraine. And at President Zelensky, very shortly after Putin launched the all-out invasion, he made that very alarming warning at the time. He said, if Ukraine is no more, then God forbid Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia will be next. There have been some very alarming warnings in recent weeks from Europe. We've had the German defense minister suggesting in a media interview that a Russian attack on NATO could occur within five to eight years. We've had Admiral Rob Bauer, who is a British chair of NATO's military committee, in recent weeks describing the current global situation as the most dangerous world in decades. And the Swedes are now, their commander-in-chief urged Swedes to mentally prepare for war, with the Swedish Minister for Civil Defence warning of war's potential arrival in Sweden. I mean, these warnings have appeared in the media. They've been discussed and debated in the news and on the airwaves, but there hasn't really seemed to be much of a change in mentality, really. And part of this may be because we are sort of damned by our short-term electoral cycles. We are sort of forced to think in short-term strategies. Will things change? Will it be soon enough? And what do you make of those warnings from within Europe in recent weeks? It's good that these warnings appearing because after 2014, then Crimea was occupied. I was the first and probably alone politician. I called Russia as terrorist state. And I was criticized inside my country. I was criticized by my colleagues in Europe. They are too hawkish, too extreme. And uh, in reality, nothing happened. We got symbolic uh, sanctions and we left Russia with this occupation of Crimea as it is. And Russia was building on, building on. They realized that they are not really punished at all. So the problem today is that Russia has, and Putin's Russia, let's say clearly, has no uh, way back 
but to be in the war mode. They did a mistake, then they started the war. Now they have no way back. And my personal understanding and opinion is that Russia will be in the war mode until the end of the physical livelihood. He will never stop. Or Ukraine, or somewhere else. But that's only the way left for him how to rule country, how to rally country behind him. Because he's too long in office. And now only war measures. An external enemy left for that. All ideology, all laws now, all economy is put it on the war mode. And it's good that we're starting to realize that deterrence, Porsche, as we imagine, not deterring neither terrorists, neither war criminals. And Putin's Russia today is terrorist state in my mind and war criminal state. The same we saw that terrorists Hamas were not deterred by Israel. So that means no matter how much we think we can deter, deterrence is not working with such mentality people. Because of that, we need to prepare for defense. Not anymore for deterrence, defense. No matter in three years, in two years, in five or eight, today our goal in NATO is for every every country, not only on the border, to prepare for defense. And second Cold War already is started because of this hybrid measures they are using. But for us today, and it's very good that not only military, but politicians also starting to talk about it. Now it's not only to talk about it we need, but to act and fast as soon as possible. Ironically, I'm saying that Putin helping us to understand. Putin uh, showed us how they will fight, how aggressive and barbaric they are, and that no civilized war anymore possible at all. And that the war, also character of conventional war change, that new technologies are used in the war, and we, we are not prepared for that in the West. The West still we live in the peace mode, while all society and economy in the war mode in Russia. So it's discrepancy, it is mismatch in speed and, and preparedness, yes, still, but we are starting to understand and speed up with defense investments into defense on European level, on uh, each country's level. For example, Baltic states were already investing close to 3%. Poland goes even up to 4%, and we will accelerate this. We are talking about uh, general conscription introduction. We are talking about defense taxes to be introduced. So we are speeding up, and uh, we change the defense plans uh, to regional plans, uh, and the concept of how we will defend NATO territory, if it was before that you withdrawing a little bit, then returning back. So after Ukraine's example, we realize that if you withdraw and return back, there will be nothing to defend, everything will be flattened. So uh, now uh, the defense plans are rendered towards defense of the first inch of territory, and uh, we will be prepared.
President Dahlia, that warning that you've given about how Ukraine has shown if you have to retreat and then try and redefend yourself, there is nothing to regain. And obviously, all the Baltic states, they're small countries. You don't have much territory to lose and then regain. Two days ago, we signed an agreement between three Baltic states that we will create uh, joint uh, defense uh, capacities on the border, physical defense capacities. So we're doing this on our own, uh, not waiting for others. The same as we did with uh, stopping the from Belarus uh, organized immigration which was organized also by Belarus and, and Russia. I wanted to ask about the relationship with your neighbor, Belarus. Obviously, many consider Alexander Lukashenko to be under the thumb of Putin. How concerned are you about Belarus? Do you see it as an indistinguishable threat as Russia? We do not treat Belarus as an independent state. We have two Russians on our border, Kaliningrad and Belarus. That's it. So, and the threat we saw in Ukraine war that the Russian territory was uh, used for attacks uh, to the north of Ukraine and to Kiev in the very beginning of the Ukrainian war. So for us, and now with the placement of uh, nuclear weaponry on Belarus border, so we know that in Kaliningrad also there are nukes placed. So we squeezed between two Russians with nukes on our borders. But this is not threatening us, no. We're used to this. We know this enemy. And if enemy wants to be enemy, if enemy wants to be not neighbor, but enemy, it will become an enemy. We try to explain to our Western partners that it is serious or no later. We will not be able to avoid, as we're avoiding now, to confront Russia. Uh, in Ukraine, because we think that if we will give some weaponry not sufficient enough, but just them to keep floating, not sinking, it's enough. No, it is not enough, because this is taken as a weakness of the West. And if it is treated in East of our border as weakness, that means they will try further to check our resilience and check our strength to defend ourselves. Not only, I mean, Baltic states, but in general. So, And uh, from this point of view, we pushed to create different defense plans now to implement them because then I came to office, I realized we have been already six years in NATO. There was no defense plans at all for Baltic states, at all. You're so close to Russia, you know them well. And I noticed that you used a phrase which I agree with Putin's Russia, there must be, you know, many, many, many Russians who are desperate about the current situation. I mean, in your view, is there any chance that that sort of different political view inside Russia will be articulated, will be represented? Or is, you know, the suppression of the current regime so total that there's no chance of that happening? Because, you know, I think we would all hope Knowing Russia to an extent and knowing the positive aspects of its culture rather than its politics, that there could at some point in the future be a change. I don't think that in the near future we will see any change unless the regime would like to change the structure of itself. Because the suppression of people is so strong and after elections of presidential elections in Russia in spring, I'm sure that these repressions will increase only because Putin cannot rule the country without suppressing opinions and any disobedience. And uh, his idolization of Stalin's time will give him examples how he can manage and how people will be under pressure and um, obedient. 
From this point of view, I don't think that a lot of people who were capable, they left Russia, who were more uh, liberal and more uh, freedom-minded, but the rest uh, is the mass who is just willing to survive and uh, not to talk about and not even to think about what's happening around. And they are very simply eager even to believe to official propaganda. From this point of view, we see that the repeat of Stalin times with gulags, with um, disappearance of people, with suppression of any mind or, or beliefs are taking place in Russia uh, faster and faster. And that's uh, what I envisage in the nearest future because this is the easiest way for authoritarian regime, which became an autocratic regime, to govern country, to have external wars or war or wars, external enemies, and to suppress its own people. So they have a lot of territory, they know how to manage, they had experience in 20th century how to do it, and they are going already starting to do it. But after elections, I think the, the treasurer's people will suffer a lot. Obviously, the role of the US is so paramount. It is the centrifugal force behind NATO. It is the big money spender. So far, it has put its money where its mouth is up to a point. I know obviously the US are struggling to get the latest Ukraine spending bill through Congress, but it really has been because of the US that Russia has not yet managed to retake all of Ukraine. We are obviously looking at a year in which the US is going to the polls. Former President Trump has repeatedly said that he would threaten to abandon Europe's defense. And he's boasted recently that while he was president, he had told a fellow head of government, I will not protect you if Russia attacks. Now, you gave an interesting interview to the Financial Times recently where you have said it's very worrying that NATO could be weakened by the outcome of the US 2024 elections. And you went on to say that you doubt some of Lithuania's Western allies. And they quoted you saying, we have leadership in the East who are willing to fight, to go to war, to change the world. We do not have such leadership in the West. I just wanted to ask you about what are your fears for your Western allies, your how important are the next US elections? And, you know, given that a lot of countries in Europe and in NATO perhaps are overly reliant on the security guarantee from NATO, and yet there was a recent pro-Russian government in Slovakia that was elected, Hungary's Viktor Orban, both of these countries are in NATO. Could NATO fracture? Uh, it is very difficult situation to explain, but it's not so frightening and not so catastrophic as it sounds. Good. Glad to hear it. Yeah, because I had an experience in working with President Trump. He was around the table that he first came to Brussels for NATO, first his meeting, and was even ready to walk out because of very little uh, uh, the allies were spending on defense. And I remember the hard talk from his side uh, towards Germany, uh, Chancellor Merkel and others. And that was, I think, justified. Because at that time, it was uh, 2017 or 18, it was only about six uh, countries who were spending about 2%. The rest, Germany at that time even was spending less than 1% of GDP. But now that situation radically changed. Now it's more than 20 countries paying more than 2%, and even Germany is 
climbing up to 2%, and situation is radically changed. Yes, if President Trump will return, there will be a lot of unpredictability, predictably unpredictable. And he likes it himself to be unpredictable. And that means also that even enemies, our enemies, will do not know exactly what he will do, because he will rely a lot on emotion, on information, on concrete situation, and it's no 100% guaranteed that he will do something very, very wrong for us or destroy something. It is possible to talk with him. It is possible to work with him. And that's my own experience. Yes, it will be a lot more unpredictability and more difficult. And let's our enemy don't be happy so much and be enjoying that it will be for them perfect timing. No, no. If he will be touched, he will be back. He will not allow Putin to put uh, his fingers on his toes. No. But, of course, there will be a lot of risk for all of us, especially having in mind that today in Ukraine, for example, the support of the uh, U.S. is about 50%, and all Europeans are about 50%. I mean, Europeans, Canada, and other non-European partners. But what we got, we got different NATO. We got enlarged NATO. We got different spending and different understanding that is not only deterrence but defense. And this is also good because of threat, of course, of President Trump's uh, return and because of Putin's war in Ukraine. We differently seen the threats, we different evaluating and we differently investing into our defense. Yes, today there is a lack of Western leadership. Yes, it's elections, it's, let's say, Different understanding in some countries, they think that the things can return back after the war in Ukraine as usually with Russia. It is not the case. This situation changed so much. The war changed so much. The Russia changed so much. There will be no the same Russia anymore. There will be no relations with Russia anymore the same. So the world changed. And geopolitically, what we see this global fight, not only Russia's in Ukraine, it is global fight of authoritarian East against democratic West. It's becoming more global than only regional conflicts and regional wars. And I am sure that we will be able to defend ourselves. I'm sure that we will be able to strengthen ourselves. And in difficult crisis, always leaders arise. Today, I do not see them. But it's not yet <laughs> the situation. We know how Churchill uh, arise during the Second World War. I'm sure that the leadership will, uh, somebody will take responsibility. Leadership is to take responsibility. And this will uh, occur if situation will deteriorate. But yes, elections are sensitive everywhere, in the US especially. It could be quite difficult for us, but it is not uh, catastrophic. It's not catastrophic. President Dahlia, you make a key point. Effective deterrence depends on uncertainty about how your opponent will behave. <laughs> it's my experience. Uh, you can manage, but you need to know how to manage it, and you need to be not afraid to manage. That's again about leadership. Again about leadership. It's a great concluding observation for this important podcast. It's been absolutely wonderful talking to you and inspirational to hear your views of uh, how these events can be managed. Let's put it like that. We will survive in any situation. 
thank you for ending on such a positive note of optimism. We don't get enough of that. I cry myself because I know that if you are under crisis or war or crisis, you are receiving additional strength and creativity to manage it. And uh, reforms usually done during the crisis, not in peaceful times. So from this point of view, I think it is not a challenge. It will be opportunity to go for new order, new peace, and new world. I thought that was a really interesting conversation. I thought President Dahlia was a fascinating interviewee. The one thing that, although she is quite optimistic about how we may rise to the challenge of potential conflict. She did say a few things that did concern me at the end. She hinted towards a looming conflict between authoritarian East and demographic West. And it just made me feel like there is an inevitability of a clash that could result in conflict on a much wider scale. Is that melodramatic of me? And, you know, we did mention in that conversation some of the really concerning warnings in recent weeks. The Swedes are now preparing for war. The German defense minister is saying we need to prepare for war. Admiral Rob Bauer saying we are at a dangerous precipice. I mean, is wider conflict between East and West inevitable? No, I don't think it is. And I would remind you of the phrase, I can't remember who said it, if you wish for peace, prepare for war. And I think that we're very much in that phase, because President Dahlia's thesis overall is that the provocation that Russia has created has massively strengthened NATO. And I mean, she made the point about, you know, if Trump is re-elected and comes to Europe, he's going to face a totally different situation where the GDP of the majority of NATO members has risen above 2%. And in the case, for example, of Poland and the Baltic Republics, I mean, Poland's up to 4%, and the Baltic Republics are above 3 and rising. Similarly, the UK is increasing its defence expenditure. And of course, the other thing that we didn't discuss with her, but is crucially important, is the addition of Finland and Sweden to NATO, both of whom have very, very sophisticated armed forces, particularly the Finns, because of their own historical experience. So I I think the point she makes is, you know, very much the one, if you wish for peace, prepare for war. And that means having all of this infrastructure paid for, developed. And uh, she made an interesting point about this agreement amongst the Baltic republics, which I was not aware of, for a physical common defensive line, which they're clearly now beginning to build and construct. So I think what she's really talking about is a standoff between, you know, autocracy and democracy, and the line will be drawn no longer, you know, through the middle of Europe, but the line will be drawn along the border of Russia and Russia as well. So, I mean, I think Her analysis holds together, in my opinion, and it may sound alarmist, but I don't think one necessarily has to be that alarmist. One just has to be forensic in one's analysis and prepared for the threat, the military threat, which we now know. And the the other thing which is important, which she didn't say, is that the performance of 
the Russian military in Ukraine has been appallingly bad. And, you know, NATO should take heart from that and understand that it isn't inevitable, as we used to think, that, you know, if there was a war, Russian tanks would roll across the northern European plain. I mean, it's clear that's not going to happen. I think all of that is correct, although NATO has never really been challenged to act before. It did in the aftermath of 9-11, but that was a very externalised war. It was one that took place far away from many NATO countries' borders. It was a different situation to rationalise than I think if Putin were to do something beyond Ukraine. And I guess what concerns me is that NATO is an alliance made up of very specific and different constituent parts. And there are dozens of countries in NATO, and that includes countries who, as you mentioned at the top of our conversation, have been more willing to be open, to be pragmatic with Russia and Putin. Hungary has not wanted to stick its neck out either with sanctions or with supporting the Ukrainians. We now have someone who's described as being pro-Putin and pro-Russia leading Slovakia. There are some countries that if any of the Baltic nations, for example, or Moldova or other countries which are hoping to join both Euro and NATO are attacked, that they will not want to do anything about it, will not want to stick their neck out, perhaps could complicate a NATO response. I'm not even really talking about Article 5, but could individual parts of NATO complicate and hamstring its response to any further Russian aggression on its borders? Possibly. But I think my general answer to your quite complex question is a relatively simple one, which is I do not believe that the Russian general staff, after what has happened to them in Ukraine, where they held all the cards, will risk a conflict with NATO. I just do not think that that will happen at the moment. Maybe if Russia rearms in 10 years' time, but it's going to take it years to do that. But in terms of an imminent threat, no. And it's quite clear that Article 5 obliges NATO as a whole to intervene on behalf of a member state which, you know, is in crisis or is threatened. The Russian general staff at the moment will not go there. If I make it, and I'd make that as a, as a prediction. That's it for this week's episode of One Decision. We drop new episodes every Thursday. Like and subscribe so you never miss an episode. Drop us a line, tell us your thoughts, what decisions have impacted you and where you live. You can write to us. Our email is onedecision at onedecisionpodcast.com. From me and the team, thank you for listening and see you next time. <laughs>